thanks everybody for coming today for our first talk. I hope everybody can hear us on there. We have a whole group of folks. And just so you know, you're all on mute um, so that we can't hear you um, until we unmute you. So uh, what we're going to do is we're going to have um, David Ferrier with us today. Uh, David's a senior lecturer in English literature um, at the University of Edinburgh. And he'll be uh, talking with us about his brand new book um, that's just come out, Footprints in Search of Future Fossils. Um, there it is. Nice. Uh, so he will be uh, talking to us first and doing some readings um, from that book. And then after he's finished with his presentation, um, then we'll open it up for questions. So David, uh, welcome, and I'll give the floor over to you. Thank you. It's really uh, a, a pleasure and a privilege to be joining you and um, I hope we're going to have a really good discussion. So um, I've been asked to talk for about 10-15 minutes about, about footprints. Um, so I'm going to say a little bit about what led me to write it, the kind of questions I was asking. Um, I'm going to read a bit about certain um, experiences and encounters that I had in researching and writing the book. And uh, yeah, we'll go from there. So. What led me to write Footprints um, was um, the sense that you know, we were seeing, as I think many of us have, have been acutely aware of, more and more stories of, of um, a strange new world arriving, unprecedented bushfires, um, vast quantities of plastic in the oceans, um, one in 100 year storms becoming an annual event. And the question that often accompanied these stories was, how do we learn to be good ancestors? How do we learn to think about the legacy we're leaving? And, and it, it seemed to me that in order to answer that question, we need to rethink our relationship with deep time. The changes that we're making to the planet are wide and deep, and in many cases will last for time out of mind. Uh, the, just one example, the uh, carbon that we've added to the atmosphere, um, the last traces of this won't be scrubbed away for 100,000 years. Um, we're leaving our mark on deep time. We are actors in deep time. And in Footprints, I basically investigate what exactly our mark on deep time will be, whether that's um, in 10,000 years or 10 million. The assumption guiding the book is that our future fossils um, are our legacy, but they're also an opportunity. Um, what I suppose in the book is that you know these will be legible legacies. They will be legible traces. People will be able, you know, if anyone is around to to read them, will be able to, to tell stories about who we were, how we lived, what we valued uh, from the traces we're leaving. And there are opportunity because we need to grasp that opportunity to decide what that story will be. Um, but in order to, to do that, I think we have to learn to see deep time differently in the everyday. And this is um, what I'd like to read to you from, uh, from the introduction to Footprints, which is about the challenge of seeing deep time. One day in November 1944, standing on a bare ocean moulded hill in the chalk uplands of Dorset, the Irish writer John Stuart Collis sought to peer through the veil. I pressed my mind back through the bottomless abysses of time, he wrote later. The effort is beyond him, but it summons a memory of when time did briefly stand revealed. 
Once, in the middle of the Atlantic, looking at the horizon, I tried to imagine the space beyond it, he writes. For a second, I had a true glimpse of that space and of the space beyond that space. And perhaps for as much as a second now, I saw the reality of a hundred million years. In the ocean's immensity, the truly deep age of the earth flares for an instant with the force of a vision. In the rhetoric of ancient Greece, the term for this eruption of clarity was enargeia, and it described a speaker's capacity to peer beyond the present moment. Aristotle wrote that Enagea allowed an audience to see things occurring now, not hear of it as in the future. What Collis saw as he tried to push his mind's eye beyond the grey horizon was the Enagea of deep time, rhyming the pitch and roll of the Atlantic with an uncanny tilt of the senses. The same vision is available to us too if we choose to look with patience and care, and by it we can catch, as the poet Shelley did, gleams of a remoter world, or perhaps not so remote. What Enagea reveals is not always easy to face. Alice Oswald's translation of the term is bright, unbearable reality. Not long after the peak in May 2013, global atmospheric CO2 dropped below 400 parts per million, but this was only a brief reprieve. Allowing for fluctuations, today the level of CO2 in the atmosphere is around 410 ppm, rising at around 2 ppm per year. Climate scientists recently proposed that human activity is forcing changes to the Earth system 170 times faster than natural processes. By this queasy calculus, we will see 10,000 years of environmental change in 58 years, less than a single lifetime. So the challenge, I think, is to learn to see deep time all around us and to imagine um, what that legacy will be and how do we how do we construct a story around that legacy that um, uh, tells a story of care and concern, not a story of destruction and, and exploitation. One of the um, chapters in the book thinks about this in terms of nuclear waste, one of the most deadly legacies that we're going to leave. And um, I was fortunate enough to go to visit um, the Onkelo repository in Sweden, which is uh, in Sweden, I beg your pardon, in Finland, sorry, um, which is um, being built to preserve all of Finland's nuclear waste um, safe from intrusion for at least 10,000 years. Uh, in fact, they've set a reference period of a million, I think, years to be sure. And unlike other efforts to um, make this material safe um, in other parts of the world, uh, they're not looking to mark the site and to warn people against uh, intruding on it. They're looking to just leave it to be forgotten. They're building this repository 500 meters into the bedrock. Once it's completed and filled after about 130 years of being, uh, being filled, um, it will just be covered over and left to return to nature, as it were. Um, as I say, I was fortunate enough to visit Onkelo. Um, and to see some of the deposition tunnels where they'll be storing this um, uh, highly hazardous material in um, big, big um, copper canisters in boreholes in, in um, these specially designed deposition corridors. Um, and I'm going to read to you of, uh, about what I found in those, those corridors, but just to, to uh, um, help with some of the references, uh, this passage makes reference to 
the Finnish epic poem, The Kalevala, and in particular, the story of the Sampo, um, a fabulous machine forged um, by the, the smith uh, Ilmarinen, who, uh, who created the Sampo as a means to generate fabulous wealth, and it was therefore highly desirable um, and fought over throughout um, the Kalevala. Um, but throughout the poem, it's known often as the bright lid. Our last stop was to visit the research tunnels where engineers were are perfecting the method for final dis disposal. There were three. One was busy with engineers digging a borehole. Another, where they had been testing how to close each disposal tunnel, was blocked by a concrete seal. But the last, in Goldilocks fashion, was open. It was much narrower than the access tunnels we had passed through, blind at one end and coldly illuminated by arc lights. The walls were draped untidily with cables and a generator and spools of more cables had been left at the back. Set into the ground, evenly spaced, were three enormous circular concrete lids, each perhaps one and a half metres across with a small square hatch in the centre. Jari lifted the hatch in the first and shone his torch down to the cylindrical borehole eight metres deep. To my surprise, there was a flash of lime. It was a pool of water, the same shade of green as I had glimpsed at the base of the open pit at Ranger Uranium Mine in the Northern Territory. Jari said that they dyed the water sometimes to track where it flowed. Despite the clutter of construction materials, the only word I could think of to describe the tunnel was holy. This is where the final disposal of spent fuel rods will take place, a sanctuary set aside for the deep future. It was unexpectedly profoundly moving. The disposal tunnels and access roads will be backfilled to the surface, but if anyone in 10,000 years time was tenacious enough to dig their way down here, this is what they would see. I felt jolted forwards in time as if my own feelings suddenly mingled with the future visitors' rush of excitement. As the concrete seals were lifted and the gleam of the copper canisters caught the light again after thousands of years of being buried upright in the dark, would they feel horror, exhilaration or reverence? I could imagine their gasps echoing in the small tunnel as they raised the concrete seals to reveal the shining bright lid. Would the sample still be remembered here? Might they even think they had discovered the source of the myth? I asked Passy if anything else would be left in the tunnels before they were backfilled. They'll probably take anything of value, he replied. But it looked to me that much of what would be left down here would speak of the people who laid this vault in the earth. Not just the disposal chambers and their thousands of canisters, but the mesh and concrete coated walls, the deep score marks, the pipes that will carry hot water to the engineer showers. I was startled to realise that of all the many roads I travelled since I'd started my journey, this one I was standing on hundreds of metres below ground was the one most likely to survive as a future fossil. When nothing of the road network remains above ground, the 42 kilometres of roads through Onkelo will still be here, backfilled but intact with their smooth surfaces and arcane signs like the emergency exit markers with their running figures. I wondered whether a future intruder would read these as a warning to flee from unseen dangers or an encouragement, an invitation to hurry on through the door into the dark. 
Okay. I think I'm probably near to the time that I've got left for my bits. Uh, so I just want to read a paragraph from the very end, which speaks, I think, to the essential um, challenge that the book uh, makes or that I want to make through the book, which is, is the challenge to think of the then of 10,000 or 10 million times, 10, sorry, 10 million years from now as diffused in our now to think of deep time as and the deep future as an intimate concern for our present. Future fossils show us that we aren't obligated only to the generations that will directly follow ours, the children of our children's children, but to humans who are separated from us by hundreds, even thousands of generations. These are people whose languages and cultures will be wholly alien to what we know or can imagine but who may have to live in a world still warped by our decisions made millennia before their birth. The better we learn to see the new world that is promised by our inaction, the better, I believe, we will be able to imagine an alternative for ourselves and for those who will follow us. Still, it is far from easy. We think we know what to expect from the world we live in and miss the opportunity to see things not only for what they are, but also for what they are becoming. New worlds open up every day, Italo Calvino observed, and we fail to notice them. In the rush of everyday life, we miss the subtle shift. Through habit, we see the present by the light of the past. The challenge is to learn instead to examine our present and ourselves by the eerie light cast by the onrushing future. Thank you. Thank you very much, David. Um, that was a really moving way for us to, to rethink how we think about things, especially myself as a historian, right? So, um, and as a historian, always thinking about the past, but it's always the past is somebody else's future, right? Sure. And our, present, our present is somebody else's future too. And what I think also really struck me about your example of the nuclear waste is how often when we, if we look at our practices of how we reconstruct people in the past and what they've done uh, historically, um, you know, and use archeology, span we often actually use their waste. That's, that's precisely what we use. That's what we have left is what they threw away. The things that they would say are not useful anymore. Um, and that's how we say, oh, this is what the society was. So I think it's really telling to use an example like that to say, yes, in the future, this is how they're going to know who we were, is by what we threw away. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, in the case of the nuclear waste, of course, it's stuff that we are, um, that we don't want, we want to put away from ourselves. You know, it's, it's waste in that sense, but of course we can't afford to discard it carelessly. Um, and that's the challenge is, is to, is first of all, you know, to make sure that this stuff doesn't become an, an, an attraction. It doesn't become a, a, you know, a curiosity, something that draws people to it. Um, but through that, we have to then kind of cast, you know, put ourselves into the position of, of someone whose language has evolved, you know, unrecognizably beyond our own, whose culture will have evolved in ways that we can't really fathom. And, and try to suppose what would they, what would be appealing to them? Uh, what would they pay attention to? 
and it's a real challenge i think to to put ourselves in in the um in the shoes of 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 people who seem so distant and yet will be intimately connected um to us because the world we're making is the one that they're going to live in um yeah and what that's really very much what i was i was concerned with in, in footprints is is thinking about the kind of um the kind of stories that might be told about us because you know it's, it's through stories that we carry ourselves through to the the future isn't it you know the stories are the vessel that have carried what it is to be human from generation to generation um, there's a real intimacy in stories they take us into experiences that aren't our own and i, I think we can use that we can, we can use that to sort of travel through time to transcend this great gulf and to realize that you know that sense of the distance of the deep future is a fallacy because of course in many ways the deep future is now the deep future is already here um there's a real intimacy there between you know the the decisions we're making now and the world we're creating that others will have to live with that we need to take account of all right so um if people have questions if you can just kind of let me know on chat and we can uh, call on you to ask your question to David about his new book, Footprints. Come on, I know you're all like, oh no, this is digital media. Okay, an observation, Ellen uh, Arnold. Um, and let me come down to you, Ellen. Where did I, where did she go? I have to find you to guess. You're <laughs> on Ellen. Am I unmuted? Yes. Awesome. Thank you so much. This is so exciting. And I loved getting this preview of your book. Um, my observation is that I, I teach a class on ancient history. That's largely about the process of archeological discovery. And as you were talking about the future people opening up the waste tunnels, I was just immediately struck with the parallels with the Carter um, sure, yeah. opening of King Tut. So I just thought that was lovely. And I think that people who've read a lot of archaeology will, will feel that. And it's very, it, it does what you, I think you were wanting it to do. So Thank you. it was really cool. That's really kind. Thank you. Thank you. Um, yeah, it, it was, an, it wasn't, I mean, I, I I hope it didn't seem like I was overstating things. It was one of the most astonishing experiences I've ever had, just to stand in this effectively a construction site. Um, but to imagine that, you know, um, this site will be preserved for the deep future, set aside, you know, almost sanctified, because what it contains um, has, you know, very much in, in, the, in the manner of, you know, the, 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 the Carter excavations to, you know, in, in, you know, as, as we hear in the kind of the popular imagination, really lay a curse on uh, on whoever uh, uncovers it. Um, and it really did hit home that there was a, a, you know, this was a place where a real duty of care was being expressed. A, a, you know, an obligation to protect and preserve um, and and express our our, um, our kind of ethical obligation to uh, people who have, will not be born for thousands and thousands of years. Laura, Octobeka, you have a question. So, let's see, we can unmute you. Yeah, go ahead, Laura. Oops. Um, hi, hey, um, thanks for your talk. Um, so my question is about uh, the deep future. Uh, <laughs> 
all I know about the deep future is from having read that book by Marcia Bjornerud called Timefulness, which is really just geology for dummies. And um, I was wondering, she says that there is a lot more that we know about the deep future that we don't know about the, the near future, right? The near future is much more unknown to us than the deep future. And I just wanted to ask you whether uh, you agree, and if so, where the, does this where does this sense of uh, of security about the deep future? Where does that come from? Like how how um, these you know what knowledges do we draw on to know about the deep future and how reliable or how yeah like how reliable maybe are they? Um, okay, yeah, so. Um, I, I gave a talk a couple of weeks ago uh, where it was put to me that we, we stand on the brink of, you know, something. We stand on the brink of a, a world we don't want to see. Um, and there's some truth in that, but I, I, my, my answer was that I think, in fact, we stand, it's more like we stand on a, at the junction of an extremely complex crossroads. You know, there are multiple, I and mean, you've seen this, you know, we're, we're constantly told that, you know, we, st you know, we could, you know, we could enter into a world of 1.5 degrees or two degrees or three or four or seven or nine or, or what. Many different futures lie open. And so I think you're right that the, um, in some respects, the, there are aspects of the deep future we can be more certain about than we can of the near future. But I think we have to take that as an, you know, that's an opportunity again, that, that's something that we need to grasp rather than feel disempowered by. Um, there are some very unwelcome futures, um, you know, that lie down the road from some of the, the um, choices we'll make at this crossroads. But there are also some futures that we would be much happier to live in. Um, in terms of why we might be certain, um, in Footprints, I draw on a whole range of different specialisms um, that are not my own um, as, a, as a, a literature academic, um, particularly the, um, the work of geologists who are trying to uh, um, ground speculations in, in what will be the durability of plastic, um, what will be um, the, uh, you know, the, the legacy, the trace left by our cities, in the sediment and and in some respects we can be certain that these materials these you know will um leave a distinct trace purely because of the quantity um if nothing else first of all um i visited shanghai in the course of writing footprints in order to explore a bit more about this question of you know um, how will a city become a fossil what will be left of these great conurbations that we've built and because Shanghai is sinking, it's sunk by more than two and a half meters in the past hundred years, um, because seas are rising, and there's a strong likelihood that um, the roots of this enormous city, which you know go down tens of meters, you know, in terms of the bit foundations of skyscrapers, and they're pushed into very, very soft, boggy ground that really isn't meant to sustain buildings of this height and weight. Um, that these roots, these roots of concrete and steel, and because in many cases these buildings have shopping malls and parking lots and um, metro lines running through them that go in, in a subterranean level, materials like glass, um, iron, aluminium, copper, will all be there at the subsurface level. And as the seas rise, it will, it will cover the whole cityscape in a kind of a, 
a sealing layer of sediment of mud that will you know preserve it and as the weight is built up over years and years and years and years um create this compressed fossil layer perhaps only a meter thick um so what we know about how fossils form, what we know about the, the durability of some of these materials, how they react chemically under certain conditions, I think gives us a fair degree of certainty that, in, that some of the future fossils that we're going to make are already foretold. Um, plastic has you know, a, a long life that we only really experience a fraction of you know, when we use it, but you know, it's drawn from long-lived materials um, long-lived materials in oil um, and its durability as it circulates in the oceans and gradually settles to the bottom mean that it will have a much longer life uh, than we suppose after we finished using it um, and you know, it's quite likely that the much of the plastic that is in the oceans will gradually settle to the bottom will accumulate in, in deposits and, and may in fact over very deep time as it you know, as, a, as more and more weight is applied and heat even return back to the oil from which it was derived. So there are certain ways in which we can um, be fairly confident that, you know, we are leaving material legacies behind that, that will be there for um, a long time. But in other respects, you know, there are future fossils that I talk about in the book that, that you know, are not yet confirmed. Um, there's a chapter in the book about the, um, the Great Barrier Reef, about the future of coral, for example. And if we continue to um, damage the oceans that, in the way that we are, um, coral may well be a thing of the past. And what we'll be left with is um, an immense kind of monument in stone to the life that was once there. But of course, that's not guaranteed yet. And that's where the crossroads comes in. You know, we stand at this complex crossroads where many different futures lie, lie ahead of us and in some cases we can choose whether we want to leave this kind of future fossil this kind of legacy or um or not all right um nancy langston you had a question let me see if i can find nancy i got it all right great. i've got it um, thanks so much, David, for coming today. I actually ran into a Twitter thread yeah. by you yesterday or the day before, March 19th, I guess. And I was completely intrigued. He has a Twitter thread about suggested readings. And I um, was trying to piece together what your book was about by this extraordinary <laughs> collection of readings. And some of them, oh, and I first I wanted to express my sympathy for having a book launch in the midst of a global pandemic. <laughs> That must suck, but anyway, I'm sorry. Um, but some of your suggested readings, like the nuclear leg legends and atomic priesthoods mm. and Rebecca's plastic thing were sort of predictable. But others I was really intrigued by and wonder if you can talk more about why I say the connection between, say, um, Clade by James Bradley, which is an apocalyptic mm. pandemic -y novel, mm -hmm. and some of your other ones were really, really cool. Which ones? Um, oh, Robin Wall Kimmerer is reading Sweetgrass, which is an extraordinary book, and mm -hmm. Carpinteria. And then um, the John Berger 
um, yeah. essay where I look at animals and then Ed Young's new book about multitudes of microbes. It's just, what's the thread that ties all these together, except they're all my favorite things to read. So they must be incredible. Oh, good. I'm glad you, I'm glad you found that. Yeah. So uh, I suppose the thing that ties it all together is um, my sense, and I think it's shared uh, implicitly, uh, if not directly in, in all of the pieces that you mentioned, that, you know, deep, you know, we live in the flow of deep time. Um, that we need to stretch our temporal imagination, I think, and not just see ourselves as inhabiting um, timescales that are familiar, um, um, by which you know, that unfold, you know, at the scale of human generations, or that are lived on on the scale of human experience, um, but that we live in the flow of deep time as well. And in different ways, all of these texts, I think, articulate that. Um, James Bradley's Clade is a remarkable novel um, that. Um, gives us a series of, of, of moments um, in the life of a family unfolding over several generations as they live through a series of climate crises. And its focus is on you know, the, the, the everyday aspect of that, on, on what it's like to live through that crisis. The, the, the crisis itself unfolds in a sense in the background, uh, which is of course how many of us at least are at the moment living through through climate change. And it, it very, I think, acutely and cannily conjures that sense of, of living uh, life against the backdrop of crisis, but shows us how that actually, you know, takes place over um, a much longer time scale and gives us that sense of another temporality unfolding uh, that is intimately connected with the, the main events of, of the novel. Um, what else did you mention? Carpentaria, I think, uh, again, is an astonishing novel, one of the great novels of the 21st century, another Australian novel, um, Alexis Wright's Carpentaria. And I think the value of that novel is the way in which it, it, it um, is so invested in uh, a cosmology, the cosmology of um, indigenous Aus Australians that is, um, I guess, already open to deep time, already um, uh, attuned to um, the rhythms um, of deep time and is very um, much about dramatizing how that cosmology has been affected by an extractive approach to the land, to country, um, by the, the intrusions and the damage caused by um, a particular mining company. So I think my, what connects these works is deep time and the way in which it, it introduces a sense of the, kind of the intimacy of deep time, the everydayness of deep time. A quick follow-up question. Two of the books I was really intrigued by were Ed Young's Our Relations with Microbes and then Berger's The Relationships with Other Animals. And I'm working on a project that looks at our relationships with other species, but I'm just really curious if you could talk a bit about the connections between those sort of cross-species connections and your idea of deep time. Sure. Well, I mean, I think like like many of us, I've been very influenced by the work of people like Tom Van Doren um, and uh, Michelle Bastian, Deborah Bird Rose, and thinking about multi-species relations from uh, a kind of deep time perspective. And and um, my work in footprints very much comes out of that sense. Uh, Tom's idea of flightways, um, uh, Deborah Bird Rose's idea of ethical time and the rupturing of that um, by extinction, the, the double death of where an, uh, an individual death of an animal also is a kind of instance of death at the species level. Uh, so um, I, I think 
John Burgess' uh, Why I Look at Animals is very much thinking about how we have become human through our relationship with animals. Um, I mean, quite how much of, of the claims that he makes would stand up from the perspective of archaeologist, uh, for example. The, the, the point that, you know, the first animals uh, arrived in the human, human imagination as messengers and promises, he says at one point. He also says that the first metaphor was an animal. And I think that's a really striking suggestion, is that in a sense we, we learned to be ourselves by observing other creatures. Um, we told the first stories because we needed to communicate to our fellows that there was a, a threat or, or a, uh, an opportunity for food that lay across, beyond the horizon, um, to communicate something that we had seen that was not there in the here and now. So st stories were our first kind of technology. Um, and they were a technology that allowed us to travel in time and space. And it was, you know, it's, it's I think, plausible at least, and certainly um, provocative for thinking with, to suppose that, that it, was, it was our relationship with animals that, pro that prompted us, um, our ancestors rather, to become storytelling, um, sto a kind of storytelling species. Uh, so John Burgess' Why Look at Animals really provokes me to think about, you know, the roots of storytelling and the roots of being human um, in our kind of our relationship with other creatures as, they, as it pushes right back into, uh, into deep time. Um, I Contain Multitudes by Ed Young is a fantastic book. If anyone hasn't read it yet, I'd highly recommend it. And it, it just tells such a beautiful story of how... Um, you know, the world we live in has been shaped by um, microbial activity uh, for billions and billions of years, uh, that we are in a, an unpayable debt, we owe an unpayable debt to, to microbes. Um, and in fact, we have evolved um, in many ways um, through kind of co-relationships with our microbial neighbors and communities. Great, um, Mehdi, you have a question. Okay. Thanks, David. Hi, Thanks for the reading. It was beautiful. Uh, I was wondering, uh, while you were writing the book, uh, whether it occurred that you saw uh, fossils and traces uh, in parallel with writing itself. I'm thinking about the earliest forms of writing or a proto-writing that was found on these clay tablets. They were all imprints. They resemble fossils in many ways. So I'm, and I, I have a reason for asking that because you mentioned a lot of things about stretching our temporal imagination and also about feeling this intimacy with the future, whether that is the immediate future or the deep future. So I'm thinking about writing as a, as a practice that we usually see as, a, as an immediate sort of practice as mm -hmm. we see our texts expiring so soon. So whether that practice could maybe be a space that we could kind of feel these intimacies to the future and also where we could think about the readability of the text. Because yeah, with, with fossils, we could be leaving things behind uh, Without, without thinking how they will be read. Mm. But when we see them as text, maybe we could also kind of 
think about how we could kind of also hand down the text with the culture of writing, but also with the culture of reading it. Yeah. So, yeah. Thank you. No, it's, a it's a beautiful idea that we, you know, think about our material legacies as a story or a text, I think, absolutely. And, you know, I think it's, um, there is something very ephemeral, ephemeral about writing, you know, in, in, in terms of deep time. Um, writing is a very new technology still uh, in, in, in one sense. Um, and, and one that, you know, we cannot on its own depend upon to communicate what we want to communicate about ourselves, what we valued, who we were. So yeah, to think about not, you know, think about this this pen, for example, as as a story, as a text that will, you know, if it leaves an impression in the sediment, could be, you know, profoundly articulate in many ways about uh, our ingenuity. Um, on the one hand, to design an object like this, um, perhaps also articulate about our tolerance for inequality as well. If um, if uh, you know, it's the materials from which it's composed are um, themselves articulate of a story of extraction um, that, that connect to other parts of the world where um, uh, perhaps it might be clear that that you know exploitation was was rampant uh, whether it's because of the, the the toxicity of the environment or um uh you know the the scale of destruction the vast holes in the ground you know boreholes left by um oil wells and so on an object like this could be very articulate about the good and the bad um of of how we've lived about our ingenuity and uh, the inequality that we've tolerated so yeah i think it's a beautiful idea to think about um our legacies as texts um and and perhaps that might help us to uh, think about ourselves as storytellers in that sense that we are telling a story to the deep future yeah thank you thank you all right and we now have Alison Lawrence hi um, David thank you for this reading uh, I'm trying to take some comfort in you know imagining deep futures and <laughs> Time that feels pretty unstable. Um, so my question is about contingency and it's about the nature of fossils, right? So fossils from the deep past, I mean, it's remarkable that we have, we have anything, right? Um, it's all about contingency and context. You know, something died by a riverbed, it was covered quickly, right? But fossils for the deep future, um, these things are generally it seems already inorganic already um will last a long time these plastics these metals um so are are fossils themselves changing right um i i guess i don't have a, a fully formed question but i'm just curious about what is a fossil and i want to hear you say more about that yeah thank you um i mean the, the idea of a future fossil is a uh, uh a broad concept, I guess, in the in the book. Um, it's 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 a, an opportunity to think about legacies in various ways, and in some cases, these are, um, you know, what I imagine to be legible traces. You know, the roots of skyscrapers, but in some cases, they're absences as well. Um, the, there were kind of two questions that animated the, the book as I was writing it. One was what will be left, but the other was what will be lost. You know, the idea that absence itself is the kind of trace uh, was something that was very important to me. Um, so, yeah, you could, I mean, we could say that um, 
the kind of fossils that um, perhaps will be most abundant in the deep future will have changed. They will, yeah, they will be uh, the remnants of made things. Yeah. Um, but there will be something profoundly articulate about the the fossil gap as well, if you like. You know, the the the, the, sen- you know, the, the um, very starkly legible sense that biodiversity declined steeply at this point in time. Uh, that uh, all of a sudden, the same small cluster of 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 creatures, or the, the remains rather, the bones of the same small cluster of creatures, are being found in huge quantities on every continent. Um, apart from Antarctica, uh, a profound shift will, in terms of biodiversity, will be uh, legible as well. Um, and then the absence of of many different kinds of fossils that were prior to this, um, uh, you know, were being deposited, will itself be um, uh, very articulate, I think, as well. Thank you. Thanks. All right, and now um, for, I think we'll take our last question from, oh, Finarna says he wants to ask a question. Matthew Uh, (laughs) Matthew Battles, uh, Matthew, we'll have you first and then Finarna will close. And let's see if we can unmute Matthew. There we are, go Um, ahead. I'm good, 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 good. Um, David, I wanna say thanks again, um, uh, as others have done for for sharing your work in this, crazy, unusual format, and also how beautiful, um, uh, just how lyrical those passages were. I'm really excited to uh, dive into the rest of the book, and I'm so in sympathy with the project um, that I feel like I want to push it against my own sympathy and and maybe ask you to, um, uh, to, to respond to what might be critical perspectives about a deep time perspective or a, a long now perspective. And I'm thinking about the clock of the long now, mm-hmm. right, and the long now foundation. And um, this this kind of heroic project to build a clock in a mountain that will run for 10,000 years. One of the bigger projects of our time that sort of attempted to limb some image of, of, of time yeah. in mm-hmm. institutional mm-hmm. forms. And, you know, that's a project that's been critiqued for, I mean, there's a certain kind of heroic deep time as well, that we're going to build a big monument that, you know, Ozymandian monument that will, uh, you know, um, yeah. tell about how, how great we were or how thoughtful we were. Um, What's the question, how does the question of equity work in the context of, mm-hmm. of deep time? You know, how, how do we hold, and I think some of the authors you've, you've mentioned do this work really well already, but how do we hold care for others, um, and particularly for the precarious, mm-hmm. um, in the context of the deep time uh, 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 experience of our, of our species and others? Yeah, thank you. I mean, it's a really, um, really great question. And I think you you put your finger on it straight away that these heroic monuments are dubious precisely because of this self-aggrandizing dimension. Um, we don't need them, first of all. We, we are surrounded by symbols of our intrusion on the deep future, I think. Um, you know, no, no one can point to a given object um, that is, you know, that, that is part of their daily clutter. Uh, he says, looking around the room he's in right now, um, and say this will become a future fossil. But um, something like it, very, very well could. And you know, if you just think about the think about the number of paper clips in New York right now. I mean, it's it, the abundance of of of, of the banal 
the banal made thing, I think makes it very plausible that some trace of this stuff, and it will be just the tip of the wave, as it were, but some of it will be left uh, behind, or something like it, if not a paper clip, then a plastic bottle or a SIM card or something like that. Um, and these are these are opportunities for us to reflect, I think. They're opportunities for us to think about um, the kind of story we're leaving, as, as I've said. Um, we are surrounded by opportunities to reflect upon our, the intimacy of our relationship with deep time. And there is, I, as I think I said before, you know, a story of inequality that sits alongside any story, a kind of aggrandizing story of human ingenuity here. Um, if a city like Shanghai leaves uh, uh, a layer, a fossil, a, you know, a, a meter thick strip in the strata filled with the, you know, the the um, uh, the red of iron oxides and the um, and you know a kind of milky sheen of devitrified glass and the impressions of of um, countless everyday objects, then you know if, if anyone were around to um, to look at this. Um, they would presumably ask the question, where did all this stuff come from? You know, what, what kinds of systems led to this intense concentration of stuff, of materials? And encoded within that is inevitably a story of inequality. So I, I think it's possible to um, adopt a kind of deep time perspective um, on the everyday, on the banal, on the modest and the unseen and the, un and the, and the un unconsidered objects as a way to really think about the kind of stories of inequality and, and, and unevenness that they will tell um, as much as anything else, uh, tell to the deep future. Uh, yeah, so I, yeah, I think that's my answer to that question. All right, so I'll have the, the final question then. So the both the presentation and all the questions really made me think about genre because in a way we're returning to some themes as we talk. Now one is, is really about um, reflexivity. I mean, we're thinking about uh, ourselves, the impact of our action. The, in a way, how will we be remembered? What will people mm. in the far future, assuming there are people, know about us and think about us? Uh, so, so I think there's some, in a way, similarities with autobiography as a genre. You're right. You you write down your history, you write your reflections in order to try to control the narrative of the future. But are we here seeing some kind of new genre in the Anthropocene, some kind of autogeology, where we try to write? <laughs> what do you think there? Yeah, yeah. Well, um, the, one of the the artists that first got me thinking about um, thinking about uh, deep time and so on was is Alana Halperin, who is a, um, a an artist who's based between Glasgow and New York, and she does a lot of work, has done for many years, on what she calls geologic intimacy. Um, and I, you can see, I think, fairly evidently where that, you know, how that has fed into to my own thinking. She has this uh, phrase that she uses often and comes up at several times in different pieces she's made about, uh, she says, um, we are autobiographical trace fossils. And I think that that's right. I mean, we, uh, we are, all of us, uh, at least living with the potential 
to leap a future fossil. And I can't, you know, I can't make, it would be absurd for me to claim that any, any single particular legacy of my own material life will be there in, in, in the strata. Um, it might be, but it might be yours or it might be someone else's. Um, but it's, it will be a trace very like the one that I will leave, if you see what I mean. Um, and I think there's something really valuable in that because it both forces us to think about our accountability. It brings, it, it confronts us with the intimacy of the prospect of leaving our own kind of autobiographical trace. But it punctures that sense of um, hubris, that sense of self-aggrandizement, that, that um, the self-importance of leaving my legacy to the future. It asks us to think about, you know, a kind of collective legacy as well. Um, so, yeah, I think we are, in a sense, we are, um, we are leaving a, um, we are kind of, yeah, it's interesting to think about a, a kind of merging of genres there, you know, writing autobiographies into the rock and so on. But it's a very particular kind. It's a, it's a story that resembles our own, that we can, we can feel an affinity with, but not an ownership for, I think. Thank you very much uh, to uh, David Perrier um, for talking to us today about his new book, uh, Footprints in Search of Future Fossils. Um, so you're all more than welcome to order it as you sit at home um, inside, staying out of all groups and things, but electronically you are welcome and I'm glad we could all meet today. Um, so, but reading is one of the things we can continue to do. Uh, so let's make sure and read David's new book. And thanks everybody for coming and uh, stay safe and stay healthy. <laughs>